Uh, things that are substance, substantive. Substantives is a fancy way of saying something's a, a subject or a noun, a subject of a sentence or a noun, and all nouns have um, functions. You know, so, um, for instance, a chair is it's not just anything. It has a purpose to it, a uh, table, uh, television, uh, whatever. So, um Substances have uh, purposes, and uh, to be human is a substantive. Uh, so what we're going to look at today is, you know, what does it actually mean to be human? And, um, you know, what is the significance of that? So we're going to start in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll open up with prayer and be thankful and grateful to God for his uh, purpose that he has given us is there's no other way that which we're going to find the purpose of why we're why we're here and you know what does it mean to be human and that's what we're going to look at today so with humility reverence and thankfulness let's bow our heads and pray our father in heaven thank you for your word Thank you that you have provided, provided for us the truth through your word and that we can look at all parts of it, any part of it, and be taught from you through your Holy Spirit uh, to gain an understanding of the things that we need to know. Uh, we thank you, Father, that through um, your magnificent plan, your love, you have given us your son. His, his birth is what we're looking at here uh, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the narrative that explains his birth. And we know, Father, that even though you have not filled us in with all the details, but what you have given us is exactly pertinent for our understanding. And we thank you for that. We thank you for him. Uh, we ask in his name to be enlightened by your word tonight. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So is mankind significant or insignificant? That is a uh, debate that has gone on since, oh, probably since people had time to think about it, which um, is you know, one of the uh, bad parts to having too much time on your hands, uh, too much thinking, probably. But uh, first, I'll start with Darwin. Uh, Darwin was uh, wouldn't be long after his publication of uh, Origin of the Species that his work on uh, what animals would evolve to be would be applied to humans. It's not that he was the first to do that either. He's not the originator of that thought, that mankind is originated from some primordial uh, something else, or whether it be an ape or a gorilla. Um, the next time someone tells me that they're from an ape, I'm going to say, does the ape come from your father's side or your mother's side? I thought that was a good one I read somewhere. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, this, this evolved, <laughs> so to speak, 
And uh, that it became like conceited and even ludicrous to say that man is greater than the earth or greater than the animals or superior. Uh, then uh, we moved to Galileo, Galilei, who uh, took his fancy telescope that was made by a Dutchman and pointed it at the sky and saw that Saturn had rings around it and Jupiter had moons around it that were going around it. And so Galileo was like, well, disagreeing with the church that the universe was geocentric. Uh, he posthumized or postulized, however it's called, that is heliocentric. He was put in prison for that. Um, and then, of course, with bigger and better telescopes, the Earth, we find out, is not only is it not the center of the universe, but it's a tiny speck of dust or rock, if you will, and uh, going around a very ordinary sun, a very ordinary star, our star that is our sun, which we're very grateful for, uh, is very insignificant. Our galaxy is also one amongst billions that are insig is insignificant compared to the rest of it all. The universe is incredibly huge. It gives you a headache to think about it. And so we become, you know, the process is that we become evolved from animals and now we're a speck on nothing out in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, we could bring up many people and then I just figured I'd go to Sigmund Freud after that because Freud has such an amazing impact in our culture. Uh, and I purposely made it so that Galileo's telescope is looking right at his bald head. Um, and... You know, Freud, although his psychoanalysis has been shown to be kind of, uh, well, nobody really uses it anymore from what I read, but his influence upon the world, it basically that human beings find their fulfillment in their sexual desire and the fulfillment of that sexual desire. And so we're evolved from animals on a speck of dust in the middle of nowhere and basically, we're just here to have sex and then die. Awesome. So is man special in any way? Uh, uh, a quarter to the person who knows who Marduk is, or Marduk. We call him a duck. Actually, uh, this is the god, one of the main gods of the Babylonians. And Marduk says, I will make man who shall inhabit the world that the serve I will make man who shall inhabit the world that the service of the gods may be established and their shrines built. So according to Marduk, let's go with Marduk, that you know, mankind was made to serve the gods and to build their shrines and to basically be playthings for the gods. And so, you know, that doesn't make us very purposeful or significant. Uh, and then, uh, this guy, you might have heard of him, Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler. So, there is nothing particular about man. He is but part of this world. And, of course, this was all the sanction he needed to commit genocide against a bunch of Jews and other people. The Nazi party absolutely believed that their obligation was to eliminate the weak so that the strong could survive better. The Nazis saw that, you know, to give resources and money to those who were sick and weak and subpar human beings, in their opinion, was it just a waste? 
that it should be given to the strong, survival of the fittest, which gets us back to Darwin. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, another German uh, before the Nazis, had the same idea that the weak should be treated, uh, actually not be treated, and that the idea of treating the weak and the frail and the poor with any kind of mercy or grace was actually a poison to society, and so Nietzsche considered Christianity a poison to society. So if we take them, there's many more, and their philosophies have actually uh, create, had, had a, has had an enormous impact in our society. Uh, fortunately, Christianity has had a far more, a far greater impact in our society, though the people in our society don't even know it. Um, but that's a subject for another time. And so it's a wonderfully interesting thing to see how Western society is completely built on Christian principles, and then people living in Western society don't even know that. Because they've been around for so long. No one has remembered the origin of things like human rights and uh, fair and just government. So anyway, is mankind special? Well, it's true that the earth is on this, you know, uh, common galaxy amongst billions. But it's also true that earth has an incredibly complex ecology of life. I mean, where else do you find that? I mean, the earth is small and seemingly insignificant as it is. Uh, if you were to go live anywhere else, you'd want to get back here real quick. It's also uh, significant that man is made in God's image. But further significant, God became a man. Now, I know our secular friends and our scientists, most of them don't believe that, but... God became a man. He didn't become an angel, but a man. Therefore, man is special. Humanity is and significant. You're very fortunate to be a human being. Now, I know you couldn't have been anything else. <laughs> I've, heard, uh, I've heard a pastor say once years ago that you could have been made a cockroach. Uh, I thought, you know, that's kind of weird. Because you wouldn't know it. I don't think a cockroach has consciousness that he's sitting around going, man, I wish I was human. You know. However, and this is why we start in Isaiah 40. God is very clear that we do not live up to his standards. And so while we are special, humanity is the whole reason this planet is here. So our, you know, those who are... Um, Tree huggers. It's funny, I, I wore a t-shirt today that says tree hugger on it. But, uh, you know, that man is ruining the planet. The planet's more important than man. And a lot of people think, well, you know, there's too many people, so we need to eliminate a lot to save the world, to save the planet. And mankind's not important. But in fact, the earth has been made for man. Everything, actually, even the angels are our servants. Everything is made for man. And so, in fact, we're really special. But, however, in the face of godliness, we're not great. Look at Isaiah 40:17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, the people that this was written to, Israel, 
So let's go back to uh, Marduk over here. Marduk has this philosophy. Now, all the Jews, uh, well, Judah in Jerusalem, who destroyed their city in 586 B.C.? Who were the people? They've been paying attention, going along now. There was one great empire that conquered the northern kingdom. They were the Assyrians. And about 130 years later, another kingdom who ascended in that area had actually conquered Jerusalem and leveled the place. And that was the Babylonians. And this is their God. Now, all these, not only did they destroy the city, where is God's city? God is very clear in his word that he, although he is the universal God of all the world and the universe, he picked one city to be his. One. And one people to be his. And there's, you know, it's wonderful to think about why he has done that. He doesn't really give us a, a, an explanation of that. But anyway. The people of Marduk flattened the city of Jehovah Elohim and deported his people and planted them in Babylon, where Marduk was, you know, all the rage. He's the head god. And yet, did the Jews come to believe this? Those who were in captivity, did they come to believe and say, well, our god got beat in a fight? with Marduk, so we should worship Marduk now? And they did not. In fact, God returned them to their city. Look at verse 20. God says, prepare an idol that will not totter. So this is God's evaluation of us as worshipers of false gods. And as we saw already there, you know, people have to worship something. We'll look at that again. People are made to worship uh, prepare an idol that will not totter. In other words, your your God can't even stand up. Never mind not speak or do anything, but can't even stand up. Uh, look at verse 25. To whom will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Now, and so we are special, but before the holiness of God, all of us are in that same boat as born sinners who worship idols, who are enemies of God. And that's what we're born into this world as, every one of us, born sinners. And even as believers, we still have a sin problem. So humanity is special in one way and not in another. But then at the right time, someone was born into this world who is God. Someone, you know who he is. But Jesus was born into this world. The Son, the Son of God took upon himself humanity and not just I mean, not just, but true humanity, immaterial and material, true human body, soul, spirit, truly human. That's a incredible mystery. And it's something that you and I should never get used to. The Son of God came into this world as a man, took upon himself humanity, body, soul, and spirit. At the right time was born. He was born without a human father. Born of the Holy Spirit, therefore not born in Adam. And so he was born perfect and he remained sinless his whole life. And therefore he is the one human, the one, only one, he's the one human who actually has worth and significance. All the rest of us are fallen. 
So the real significance of humanity reveals itself, and that's what we're going to look at today because we're going to return to the Magi. The real significance of humanity reveals itself when we find Christ. And when we find Christ, what will we do? Rejoice. Because we have found the reason for humanity. You know, we think, you know, this uh, is, sometimes I used to think in the past uh, that, you know, God becomes a man as kind of like an emergency rescue mission. So it almost it takes a while for at least it did for me. I'm a slow learner, but you know the fact that God would create mankind, knowing that He would fall, and that this whole world would just go so evil and sinful, and that it was almost as if in my mind that God said, "Wow, you know, look what happened. We need to fix this." And that's kind of a reactionary, really, right? It's reactionary. It's a problem happened, and now we've got to do something to fix it. But that's assuming that in God's mind, somewhere in the past, that he didn't know this was going to happen. Or that he hadn't purposed it to happen. And then you run into some very sticky theological questions. Very tough theological ground, which we have no answers I mean, God certainly doesn't create sin. He's very clear about that. But is this not his purpose? We know in uh, Acts chapter 2, as Peter, when he speaks at Pentecost, says that the predetermined plan of God was that Jesus would die for the sins of the whole world on a cross and be resurrected. That was before the foundation of the world. So it's not reactionary. This was purposed. And so mankind was purposed by God to be the finite creature. We're not infinite like God, even in our resurrection bodies, we're not going to be. But that finite creature who had divine characteristics. Divine characteristics. Loving like God. Acting in justice like God. Being gracious and giving and sacrificial like God. Just like him. Finite beings who have divine characteristics. Uh, Now, when we find Christ, we rejoice. That's what the Magi did. That's what we all do. When we find Christ, we rejoice in our hearts. If you're not a happy person, I'm going to tell you why tonight. And so we rejoice in our hearts, and then we worship him. And so we saw this week that all of humanity worships. We saw that they, if people don't worship God, they find something else to worship. Whether it's a hero or another person or money or power or, or themselves or some kind of false god, some idols, which we read about a lot in the Bible we just did. <coughs> Even the population of the world that rejects God worships something. And the real fulfillment in us, for us, comes when we worship God, though. When we worship the one who deserves worship, we find our fulfillment. And there's many reasons for that. I mean, when you're worshiping God, you're not thinking about you. When you're worshiping God, you have not become, you are no longer your top priority. When you're worshiping God, you are not caring about the circumstances, the losses, what you have and what you don't have. You're not even thinking of that. When you're worshiping God, your eyes are on Him. 
So what is worship? Get out of the way, Heimrich. First is general worship, which is prayer, praise, sacrifice. Uh, We were called sacrifice to God, but we find out in the New Testament that sacrifice is, you know, thanksgiving. We give. We give to each other. As you've done it to the least of them, you've done it to me, Christ said. So when we serve one another in our spiritual gifts, we give to one another. We, We serve one another. We serve our enemies. It's all in worship of God. If we sing with the right heart, that's worship too. Uh, sadly, in the church, it's become a modern phenomenon that worship of God is the song service in the church, and that's, that's where it is. And it can be there, but it's not necessarily there. I mean, not everybody in the pew is, or at the table in our case is singing you know, in a way that would be considered worship. And no one should know that, whether your hands are up in the air or whatever you're doing. You know, it's your heart. You worship from your heart. Specifically, it's adoration and comp- contemplation of God's holy perfection, which is truly his worthiness. And that's what we find in Revelation 4 and 5, for all of eternity. You know, when all these idols are gone and all our jobs are gone and all the things that we have to do are gone and all the uh, accumulation of money is gone and we're in heaven, what are we doing? And as far as we see, we think, I'm going to fly around, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to get sick of flying around after about a billion years, you know. Or, you know, floating around on clouds playing my harp. You're going to be pretty good harp players after about a billion years of playing it. Um, no, I, I, you know, of course, we're not, I don't know if we're doing that. But what we, I know that we're doing is we're worshiping God. Revelation 4 and 5, we say, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, worthy are you, God, to receive all power and glory and honor. We honor him. It's our very purpose, which transcends any other purpose on earth. Not that we don't take care of those purposes. We do. We have to take care of our jobs and our family and our incomes and things we have to take care of. Take care of the things that God has has given us. But it's in worship of him that we find our real purpose. And that's exactly what the Magi did. So today we continue with the Magi. They started their journey following a star. Well, it doesn't say they're following the star in the first instance. It says that they saw the star. But then the star leads them, which is curious. Uh, for the first time, I think, ever, I thought of the fact that, you know what, Bethlehem, when, when the prophecy is given, so these guys, they go to Jerusalem and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And when Herod inquires of the scribes and the, and the chief priests, um, we find out, they say, well, in Bethlehem. And they quote Micah 5.2. That was yesterday's message. And... Now, Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. Five miles. They don't need a star to get them to Bethlehem. They just need someone to say, over there. There's, it's not like it's in the midst of a whole bunch of cities like, like we are in our day and age. There's going to be Jerusalem, nothing, and then Bethlehem five miles later. They don't need a star to lead them there. But this star stops somewhere. 
And that's a significant part. It's not that they need to get to Bethlehem. Not get, getting to Bethlehem is not the point. It's getting to the Lord. That's the point. You know, and I just read today how ironic with today's message that uh, Bethlehem right now, in honor of Gaza and the war that's going on, they took down all their Christmas lights and their Christmas decorations and their Christmas tree that has been there for years because at Christmas time, a lot of tourists go to Bethlehem, which is in Jordan right now on the West Bank. But they took it all down. So Christmas is canceled this year in Bethlehem, which I find incredibly ironic. So significance of humanity. If a person were doing what they were called to do, what would they be doing? If you were right now doing what you were called to do, what would you be doing? Um, well, if you think about it, and, uh, and you could roughly come up with a, a list very quickly, like what are you called to do? Uh, good works, which brings joy to self and others. Uh, sacrifice for others. And what It's the epitome of what it is to be someone who is doing God's will, that I'm sacrificing for others, which means I value others, even my enemies. At least they have a potential value, like everybody does. They can recover, even if they're evil, lawful people. Uh, it's rewarding and joyful to serve others, if I do it with the right motivation. It's very rewarding and very joyful. Good works are joyful under the right motivation. Love for God and love for others. I'm the love of the Lord and love my enemy as my uh, love my enemy, yes, and love my neighbor as myself. And therefore it shows us that relationships are necessary and that I'm actually virtuous in my human relationships. Of course, man was not meant to be alone. I give. I'm gracious. This is also a part of it. I help the poor and the weak. This is something that those, uh, those uh, Darwinists and Nazis and Nietzsche and all of those guys that hate the fact that Christianity supports the weakling. Uh, what they don't realize is that we're all weak. See, the people who are against helping the weak are the people who think they're strong. And what did Christ tell us about people who think they're strong? What did Paul write in 1 Corinthians 1 about who God called? The strong of this world, the mighty of this world, the noble of this world. And it, according to the world's standards, these people think that they're strong, think that they're mighty. And they don't see a need for a savior, which is their issue. So helping the poor and the weak, forgiving, it's a part of this. And so we would say, you know, to be who you are called to be, which would be the significance of being human, is to... Uh, Live all the virtues that you find in the Bible. And that's a lot. It's longer than the list I just said. But all of them have one thing in common. All those things that is loving, giving, serving, forgiving, helping, um, being gracious, being wise. These are all from the heart of God. And that's what we're called to do, to be. That's what it is to be human, to be like him. It is the very real privilege of being human, is to be like him. So, man alone, not angel, man. 
was created to be a finite creature with divine characteristics. And so then the gift of God was to become one of us and then change us into being no longer united to Adam, but being in Christ. <clears throat> and so this is our gift to being mankind. Mankind is designed to be godly. Mankind is designed to be like his creator. Not to become gods, but to actually in our finite, with our limitations, which are many, to be like God. And so when Christ comes into the world, he models this. This is what he is. And hence we're all predetermined in Romans 8, 29, and 30. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, what an incredible gift. Uh, the fact that he has changed us to no longer being united to Adam or in Adam, but being in Christ. In Adam shall all die, Romans 5.12, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, God is holy, yeah? So this becomes a problem for us. I mean, if it weren't for Christ, it would be a huge problem. Uh, for us who are believers, the holiness of God is satisfied with us. That's the doctrine of propitiation. Uh, the wall between us and God has been destroyed. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. Uh, the fact that all of our sins have been paid for, that's the doctrine of redemption. Now, God could make us righteous if he wanted to. I would assume, right? I, I mean, if God wanted to make us righteous, he could make us righteous. Um, but I think to do so, he would have to make us unable to sin. In other words, he'd have to take our choice away. Uh, what I'm talking about here is, is certainly unknown territory. The fact that God would make us unable to sin, it actually seems like elect angels have this, you know, that's part of their characteristic is that they don't sin. They always obey the will of God. But when God put us in the garden, he put the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and gave us a choice. And right, initially we see the choice when he tells us not to eat of it. That obviously, he's given us a choice. Now, it's not also that God, um, it's not that God could not make us righteous as if there were some judicial law above him. In other words, you know, here we are, we're sinners, and why can't God just kind of brush our sins under the rug and just make us righteous? You know, just take a magic wand and make us righteous. And we say, well, he, we, he can't because he's just. He's perfectly holy and just. And that's true. That's what the scripture says. But it's not as if God has a court that he has to bow to. You know, there's not, it's not as if God has some kind of law that's above him that he has to fulfill or obey. Because if that were true, then the law would be God and he wouldn't be. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is sovereign. And he chose to give us choice. And by giving us choice, we could make the wrong choice. There's no such thing as choice without option to make the wrong choice. <clears throat> and so with choice, God either casts us all into the lake of fire or he goes into the fire on our behalf. 
And I'm not saying he went to hell. Some passages seem to indicate that he might have. But, I mean, on the cross, dying for our sins, taking our judgment, that's a choice that God makes. He doesn't have to do it. It's not like he has to. It's not like he's forced to. He chooses to. And by choosing to, and again, I'm venturing into ground here that has some uncertainty to it, but the fact that he chooses to do it the way that he does means that to us as human beings, he is obviously telling us that he has given us choice. And by giving us choice, he's saying, I want you to be uh, part of the process. I want you to be involved. I want you to choose my son. I want you to believe upon him. I want you to choose righteousness above unrighteousness. Now that you're a believer, I want you to follow the Lord. You, you may get yourself all completely twisted up and distracted and not follow him because something else is more important to you. And I'm not going to force you, God says. I have made it so that your choice is supreme. So in so doing... God has then made us new in him, born again of the Spirit, and he's given us the Holy Spirit and his word. So go to Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. Now, we're going to look at this. Uh, I'll have Colossians 3 on the board so that we can look at these in parallel. But first, uh, Ephesians 5, because there's a parallel passage to this. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now, there's choice written all over that. So then, do not be foolish. Again, another choice. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Another choice. Do not get drunk with wine. Another choice. For that is dissipation. We remember this word dissipation. It's the word used for the prodigal son. It means to take the things of God and run off to a faraway land, which is a sinful place, and waste them. And that's how drunkenness is described here, which would apply to all things in which we run away from God or get our eyes on the wrong thing, which, as you'll see in this message, this is the main point. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's a parallel passage, somewhat different, in uh, Colossians 3.15. So, Ephesians 5.15, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So, the parallel to this in Ephesians 5, as you see, is to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, here the wording is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So you have two things here in these, these, both these epistles are called sister epistles because they have such similarities to them, is that you have the Holy Spirit within you to fill you and you have the word of Christ to fill your soul, right? To richly dwell. This would mean that you are a student of the word of God. And so both things are here. Uh, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In Ephesians 5, walk as wise people, not as unwise. Don't be drunk 
to Colossians 3. Again, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. And now look at the second part. Look at Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, with, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now look at Colossians 3.16. With all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now you see, in both passages, we have psalms, admonishing, teaching one another. Uh, <clears throat> admonishing means to warn, actually, one another. Uh, speak, and in 5.19, Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> and so we have this, togetherness of which we are making melody in our hearts to one another, that we're singing songs to one another. And it, of course, doesn't mean that we have to sing to one another, but it does mean that we have joyous hearts towards one another, uh, that we, uh, the, the content of our joy is the word of God, which, of course, would refer to the Psalms. And so making melody in your heart to the Lord, the hymns, the psalms, the spirit, not just any songs, spiritual songs, there is a joyful, and notice, thankful, because in both passages we have thankfulness. Now, again, going back to the beginning part, Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So that's the word. And then in Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the spirit. And then in both passages, we have the result of this, is that we have joyful, together, joyful uh, worship of God, <clears throat> both of which we do, and we can do this individually, we can do this together. Now, at the beginning of this message, we look briefly at others who have an idea of what the human race is or was. Uh, Freud especially thought that the the happiness of mankind was sexual fulfillment. And so, or, you know, whatever else people believe, I don't have to go through a list, but the, the joyfulness that is in the heart of a person comes from the Word of God and the Spirit. And the Word and the Spirit have a purpose to them. So it's, it's not as if... Um, yeah, I'm just going to become a Bible scholar and then I'm going to be happy because there's a lot of Bible scholars who aren't. Uh, and then, or I'm going to somehow, you know, be spiritual. But you can't, of course, you would be spiritual in this. My point being is that the Holy Spirit and the Word are both designed to lead us to Christ. He said this himself in John 16, that I'm going to give you the Spirit and the Spirit's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to teach you all the things about me. Right? The Spirit's job is to teach us about the Lord. And the way the Spirit's going to do that is by using the Word. And so we have the Word and the Spirit designed to lead us to Christ. So if there's a believer out there who says, yeah, I know a whole lot of Bible, but they're not happy, uh, they're not content, they're not gracious. In other words, they don't live out the virtues that are Christ. 
Well, then they have, they have knowledge, I guess, but they don't really, they have not used the word of God for its very purpose. And its purpose is to lead us to Christ. So, when we, God made us new in him, he gave us the Holy Spirit and his word. And now, because of that, we can rejoice both individually and together, and we can worship him individually and together. And remember, worship is your adoration within your heart. So no one can see it but you. And it also means prayer. Uh, It means uh, being in class. It means prayer. It means service. It means living in my spiritual gift. These are all things that worship God. When I do what he commands me to do. A human being who is doing what he's designed to do. And we find it in the Magi. This is exactly what they did. So it kind of gets us past all the, you know, is man here to save the planet? Uh, Nope. Rid the world of disease and all suffering? Nope. Yeah, there's a, I, I had to, for school, for a class, I had to read an article uh, that was this kind of liberation theology. There's a lot of that. Uh, depends on what seminary or university you're at. But it's this kind of like, it's this idea that God is only for the oppressed people and therefore it's, because um, there's a lot of language like that in the Bible, you know, that God roots for the poor, blessed are the poor, or God is going to vindicate those who are oppressed and all of that. <clears throat> And some have taken those passages, of course, cherry-picking and ignoring others, and making a theology of the oppressed. And that's what it means to be Christian, is to be the oppressed. And then, and so the whole point of Christianity is to liberate them out of oppression. And so my question was, you know, once you get liberated, then you're no longer oppressed. Well, then you're no longer you know, under the favor of God. If God only favors the oppressed and we get you out, then you're no longer oppressed. You're no longer under favor. And uh, <clears throat> and there's also a lot of theology about how we're going to clean up the world and, and make everybody unoppressed. And do we recognize that God uses oppression? That God uses pressure? God uses pain and trials, you know, to... Wake us up. Or to teach us something. We may be awake. It doesn't mean if you are, uh, I would say woke, (laughs) if you're awake, you know, in terms of your relationship with God, it doesn't mean that you're not going to face incredible, disastrous maybe at times pressures because God is testing you, tempting you. He's leading you on to further things. So, uh, by doing these things, Rejoicing, A, and worshiping. Now, I know there's more to the Christian life, but I only have an hour. Rejoicing and worshiping, then I find out what it means to be human. I will find this. And this brings further joy that I'm actually, there's nothing better in life to know that you're doing something that is a fulfilling Something You are fulfilling something that's true and important with your life. And God is going to give you that. It will give you that to every single person. And this is exactly what the Magi do. 
they rejoice, and then they worship him. So look at me. Go to Matthew 2, 7. Matthew 2, 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time. The word exact is not there in the original. It just says the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. So uh, next week, maybe starting Sunday, but next week we'll spend a little time with Herod. Of course, that's a big fat lie, as we know. He wants to kill him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. Now, this this is an imperfect... Um, uh, proago is the Greek word, and it does mean to lead. It's a common word. It means to lead. And being in the imperfect tense, it means that it's leading. So you can interpret this as, well, just as they do. Uh, the star was going before them. It's not just went. It's not like an aris. It's an imperfect. It's not a point of time, but it's a continuous action. So this star is leading them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. We find out in the next line that this is a house. But this is where the family is, where Joseph and Mary, though Joseph's not mentioned here, interestingly enough, but uh, where Mary, the child, and Joseph are. And it's clear here in the Greek that the star stops there and stands over, it's the word for over, the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, again, I think this is fairly, I guess it's significant, but um, they didn't need a star to get them to Bethlehem. Anybody could have found Bethlehem from Jerusalem. Just point them in the direction. Say, it's over there. Uh, They could have asked directions. it's, It's not hard to find. But So they're not rejoicing in the fact that the star is there. We find here that they're rejoicing because the star stops at a certain place. What they're rejoicing over is not the star, but the child. And, I've said this multiple times already, when they saw the star, which is what it said, they saw the star. But in context, it would mean that they, they saw that it stopped where the child was. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Four words Matthew uses here to describe joy. One's a verb, being joyful. One's a noun, joy. The other word is great. And the other word is exceeding. Exceedingly great, joyful joy. I mean, it's, it's excessive. Especially since this narrative is so short. It's half the length of Luke's birth narrative and... I mean, it's so compact. There's a lot of details here that we don't know that we'd love to know. It's really short. But in two places here, in dealing with the Magi, Matthew uses an excessive amount of words. And the one, first place is where they are joyful. Ex- joyfully, joy, exceedingly great, however you want to say it. And then when they worship him. He uses five verbs when, he worship, when they worship. So it's like Matthew slows down to emphasize these two things. So after coming into the house in verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. 
And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. So the first verb is saw. They saw the child. The second verb is they fell. It's this Greek word pipto, which means to fall down. It could actually mean to trip, but obviously this is before worshipping. Uh, then they worshipped him. They fell to the ground, worshipped him. That's worshipped him is the third verb. The fourth verb is they opened their treasures. I love the Greek word for treasures. It's the soros, where we get our word the soros from. And they presented him gifts. And the fifth verb is presented. They gave to him. All right, so they give to him out of their worship of him, their honor of him. Uh, they're not looking to get anything from him, are they? Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, they're not like James and John who would send their mom to Jesus and say, hey, can my two boys sit at your right hand and your left? They're not looking to get anything from him. They want to give to him. And it's not as if God needs anything, right? What do you get for the one who has it all, right? It's not like he needs anything. But they give anyway. You know, there are, there's, a, there's an idea in Christianity, and I, I would think in other religions too, that we're going to worship God because he's given to us. And, and we do this. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong, but, you know, if, that, if I'm going to say thank you, God, because that situation worked out for me, and you should because God is the one who has made it work out, absolutely. But what about when things go wrong? Are we thanking God then? We're to always give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, always give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks continually for everything. But you see, that's worship. Giving thanks always is worship. Worship is adoring God for who he is, for his perfect holiness, for his worthiness, for his power, for all that he is. And he never changes. We should be thankful and worshiping no matter what. We don't, we don't worship him because he gives stuff to us. We worship him because of who he is. Again, we do not worship him because he gives stuff to us. Although he has. He's given us more than we even know. But we worship him because of who he is. <coughs> So, when we, as we close here, when we find Je- Christ Jesus, our heart should overflow with joy. It's an easy principle to pluck from this, but no less true just because it's easy. It doesn't take a lot of scholarship to pluck that one out. When you find him, you rejoice. Now, I don't only mean this, though, of course, at like the moment of salvation. I, mean, I, I do actually remember the moment that I was saved. It was a moment in my life. I can remember it super clearly. Uh, and I was ecstatic. It was a very emotional time. Now, but I've had more joy since then. And in every case that I've, and I know it, you know, whenever you've had God's joy, inwardly you know it. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on people. It's not based on things. It's just based on him. I wish it was more frequent, 
But why does it happen? It's because you are looking at him. In the eyes of your heart, you are looking at him. You're discovering him. It's, how are you going to come to the end of knowing this infinite God-man? You are not. So you're going to find out, even of the things that you think you know, you're going to find out more and more and more. And so, as I state here, if you're not happy, you are still looking for him or you're very distracted by other things. And, and if you say, well, but you don't, un- you don't understand. I, I don't, nobody has to understand. If you are a believer in Christ, you should have joy. Now, I am a realist. I don't mean that, you know, I know that joy every waking moment is a, is a pie-in-the-sky idea. I get that. But when we are unhappy, our eyes have removed themselves from the Lord and onto something else. If I am not content, uh, my eyes, just know this. And either you can make the decision, or we talked a bit about that today, is that we, we have a lot of decisions to make. There's this sick thing about us being fallen creatures that we often like to wallow in our pain, wallow in our self-pity. And what you can do is go to God's Word or go to Him in prayer and say that I am miserable and unhappy and the reason is my eyes are off you, so I'm going to put my eyes back on you. And let's fix this. And he will in a moment. If you want to. But all of us have that. Why? Because we're human. And now, humans are special. But when you're born again and saved human in Christ, you are truly what God has desired of his creation. It's really pretty awesome. So after they rejoice... Here's their five verbs. They saw him, fell down, they worshipped him, they opened their treasures, and they gave him gifts. You know, uh, I'm not sure, I, I don't know if I'm going to go into the gold frankincense, Frankenstein, you know what it is? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I know Myrrh was used to anoint the body. Uh, I, one commentator said something really awesome about myrrh, that... Because it was also used to anoint the dead. You could have used it if you had a lot of money. You would use it as an anointing on your, on your living body. But you could, it was also used to anoint the dead. And we know that Christ was anointed at his death. Um, so it's kind of like giving, at a birth, giving the parents a gift certificate to a funeral home. You know, like, here's, here's a gift certificate for the burial of your son that was just born. Um, so... Anyway, that does anything for you. Uh, so, joy is from finding Christ. Now, the door to the house is open for you to worship him. Go in and worship him. This house actually becomes kind of like a weak typology for going to heaven, of which the door for us is wide open. Remember Christ, he ripped that veil apart. We are right there in the Holy of Holies, and we can worship God day in and day out all day. We can pray to him whenever we want. We can adore him. We can, our thoughts can go to him. The eyes of our heart can be on him, on his word, on his truth. We can be filled with the Spirit. We actually, before we even get to heaven, can live a life that is what humankind was always meant to be. And therefore, we have fulfillment. So, lastly, great joy in worship is fulfillment and purpose. And that's really the most wonderful thing. 
If I know what my purpose is and I know I'm accomplishing it, I know that I'm fulfilling it and God is the one who is truly doing it through me. There's a lot of people in this world who are looking for fulfillment. They're afraid of failure of this and they're not going to get that and they live in fear and yet we don't have to have a lick of that because the birth of our Lord and we're human and being uh, in union with the God-man, we have been set free. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the grace that comes through the truth. By your spirit, Father, may we be enlightened as to the truths in this birth narrative that lead us to see uh, what we should be, what is our purpose, and to fulfill that purpose and to not listen to the lies about mankind that are in the world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.